Time is short. The stakes are high. Jesus died on the cross to save us. He lives in us to change us. So listen up. Stand firm. We tend to forget. We tend to get sluggish. Do something about it. That's my summation of the scripture we're going to read this morning. If you got that, I guess you can go home now. I've uh, sort of covered it, uh, but I'd like to say a bit more about it, and I'd like to do more of stirring it up in your heart. Uh, thank you, my brother. Um, stand with me as we read. Return to Second Peter chapter 1, our seventh week in a row in chapter 1. We're moving a little bit faster now. We're at verse, we're going to pick up with verse 11, which we were on last week, and then really focus today on 12 through 15. For in this way there will be a richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, so Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And I ask and we ask for your help. We do not pray now simply because, well, this is the time we often pray. We pray because apart from you coming and taking your word and by your spirit, bringing it personally into our hearts without you coming and anointing and somehow working through the struggling preacher who will seek to speak the words of this message. It's all for naught. But we trust you and we ask you and we even very personally ask you now to speak to our lives and to our needs in this moment. We pray that Jesus will be glorified that the lost will be convicted of their need for a Savior, and that the saved will be stirred to live and anchor their lives on the truth of the Word of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Eugene Peterson and his paraphrase, and I don't often read paraphrases of the Scripture. they helpful for study, though, and this is a good one. He reads, translates this passage this way again, verse 12. He says, because the stakes are so high, even though you're up to date on all the truth and you practice it inside and out, I'm not going to let up for a minute in calling your, you to the attention before it. This is the post to which I've been assigned, keeping you alert and free, with frequent reminders, and I'm sticking to it as long as I live. I know that I'm to die soon. The Master has made that quite clear to me. And so I'm especially eager that you have all this down in black and white so that after I die, you'll have it ready for reference. Um, obviously, one of the messages of this passage from Peter's perspective is that time is short. He's very much aware that his days are quickly numbered. And so what we have here in this whole letter is Paul's farewell address. Lou Gehrig set a record for playing in consecutive games for the New York Yankees. It lasted for a decade, an amazing career. Played alongside the likes of Babe Ruth, or his teammate, but also his competitor. Um, he did all of that until he was finally cut down by the debilitating and fatal and awful disease, ALS. We know what it took his name, the Lou Gehrig disease. In spite of the fact that he was clearly dying a horrible death, 
Gary showed his appreciation to the fans and to the public and perhaps what is one of the most famous sports farewells in the history, uh, certainly in the history of Yankee Stadium and home plate. The Pack Stadium crowd gave him a two-minute standing ovation. His speech that day, although it's not fully recorded, is referred to as the Gettysburg Address of Baseball. The New York Times said it was perhaps as colorful and dramatic a pageant as was enacted on a baseball field as 61,808 fans thundered a hail and farewell. It included many speeches, including Yankees manager Joe McCarthy, who struggled to control his emotions. He spoke of Gehrig. He described their relationship as a father-son-like bond. Gehrig, who really didn't like the attention, didn't want to speak, hadn't planned to speak, but the crowd chanted for him to do it. The manager asked him to, and so he gave that little speech. We have portions of it. The most famous line, of course, was, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Well, this is Peter's farewell address. For Peter, this is the end about to come. We don't know the precise details, the precise moment, but he knows that it's right around the corner. Verse 14, he says, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. I don't know anyone who does not to some degree, in some way, fear death. I've done a lot of funerals. I continue to do them, and everyone strikes me the same way. Death is a great tragedy. It strikes at the core of our conscience. We dread its approach. The Bible rightly describes it as our last enemy. It is that terrifying experience of being separated, our body from our spirit. We have never experienced that. It doesn't seem natural to us. Indeed, it's not natural. More than that, we are separated from people we love. And that terrifies us, grieves us, and frightens us. And yet, this morning, as a Christian, we know that the sting of death has been removed. Peter knew that. He knew he had heard Jesus say that he was going to leave them and prepare a place for them, that where they are, he might be with them one day as well. He knew what to expect in the ultimate sense when he died. Indeed, Paul and Peter seem to describe death in many of the same similar terms, in terms of tents and old clothes. If you don't have one set of clothes, you have clothes that you change. And Paul and Peter describe death as taking off of an old set of clothes, some of you have tents. For the life of me, I don't know why you have tents and why people like us would ever go out in the woods and live in a tent, but you do. But those of you who do, you don't expect that to be forever. It is temporary. Tents are not permanent. And so when our tents get tore down, that's our life. Then before us is eternity, and one day a new tent, a permanent one, a resurrection body. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, you know the words, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. This body now is like a tent. Heaven and eternity will be the building, secure, eternal, strong, reinforced seal and concrete, if you will. That our body is a tent, that it's temporary, doesn't mean that our body's bad. We live in a broken world, and so it's only going to be temporary. But we look forward to a day, not of some bunch of gases floating around somewhere in eternity, but we're going to have real bodies, more real than the body you have now. We'll know each other in those bodies, and we will serve Christ for eternity in those bodies. 
But these bodies are not eternal. And there's enough of you my age and older, some of you not my age, but you're already experiencing, they don't stay the same, do we? Now, I don't know exactly when the peak is of, of my life and when I was physically at my best. I know I passed it a long time ago. I'm on the back nine, I would say, if I was a golfer, I suppose. And we notice, no matter what we do, how well we eat, well we exercise, and we ought to do those things, but these bodies inevitably are going to decay and decline. And for those of you that are experiencing that, are frustrated by that, are struggling to listen to me now because of the aches and pains you're feeling at this very moment, I want to remind you of something. This body that's decaying, that you have to live in now, do your best with now, when you lose it, you're not losing your palace. This is not your future. And you can let it go as God decides to let it go. And gradually, we put off these tents. They were never meant to last forever. Peter, at this point, maybe, maybe as young as in his 50s somewhere. Most would say it's upper 60s, maybe even 70. At a time when most people only lived to 40, he had already had a full life. We believe at this point he is in Rome 15 years, the last 15 years perhaps there. The Roman Emperor Nero has uh, been reigning, and now his reign has taken a terrible turn in terms of Christians. Persecution is arising, and it would seem that Peter is facing the martyr's death that Jesus earlier on, at the beginning of his public ministry as an apostle, told him he would experience. But Peter faces that confidently. He faces it with absolute assurance. This hymn hadn't been written, but if it had, he could have sung it. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises I will ever give to thee. The sting for us and for Peter out of death has been taken. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. As I was reading about Lou Gehrig, I read some of the comments that he made after that farewell address in the two years he lived. He was 36 when the disease struck. He was dead within two years. In that two years, at one point, he was asked about his worsening condition. He said, I intend to hold on as long as possible, and then if the inevitable comes, I will accept it philosophically and hope for the best. That's all we can do. I don't know Gehrig's relationship with the Lord. I hope that it was strong and true, but I have to tell you, that statement's pretty weak to me. If I was his pastor, I'd like to tell him, you can know that you know that you know. Our hope is solid and sure in the trust we have in Jesus Christ. Well, Peter understands he's about to death, about to die, but while he speaks, he speaks with urgency, but it's not an urgency because he's worried about himself. His urgency was for the burden of the gospel and for those who would come after him. Urgent that you understand the gospel, that you know what Christ has done for you on the cross, and that you know what Christ is seeking to do in you now as you live in him. He knows about salvation and damnation. He knows how that makes every other thing in life look so small and so insignificant compared to that great issue of our standing with God. And he wants this church, he wants these people to be solidified and focused on those truths. He's saying, I've been given a race to run. I'm on maybe the last lap, maybe the last portion of the lap, but I want to make it count. He has an urgency for his brothers and sisters in Christ and for the lost world that needs the gospel. Peter knew what was coming for him was glorious. He was going to experience the same thing that he promises in verse 11 to all those who know Christ, who have a faith of an equal standing with his. 
who are, who are living out that faith and who are living those virtues of the Christian life so that they're being confirmed. They know where they stand. So he says what he said about them. He can say for himself in verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You come to Christ, you become a part of him, and you enter immediately into an eternal kingdom. Remember what the angel Gabriel said to Mary when he announced that she was going to bear the Savior? She said, he said, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's his kingdom that you hear that focus, future focus on in Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and forever. That's our future. That's our life. That's our destiny in Christ. Now imagine yourself what that's going to be like. I can hardly do it. We know many dear people that have come to the end of life. Some of us get to fall asleep in our sleep and never wake up. For many, it's not quite so pleasant. But I know on the other side, when it's finally the fight is done, we're going to wake up to something unimaginably glorious. The terminology that he uses here in verse 11 is the picture of a patron who lavishly celebrates the arrival of a friend or a faithful servant who is coming home. It's the language that was used in Greek writing to describe a, a, a picture of a victor who's coming home to his home city after the Olympic Games, after success there, and received with a triumphal welcome. And brother and sister, when you breathe your last and you are in Christ, you can know that's the glorious moment that you're going to experience as you begin that eternal life. Peter is going to die, but his urgency is not fear for himself. This is not, a, it's not a like a guy, like I've met many people, suddenly find they're going to die, and suddenly they have urgency, because, boy, I've, I've wasted my life, I've squandered my life, I have things to make right, to mend, and hopefully I can get right with God. That's not Peter at all. Peter could say with Paul, that I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard me against that day which has entrusted me. At the end of this letter, he, he's got his eyes on that future, he says in 2 Peter 3.13, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. His urgency is for those who are receiving that letter, who are receiving this message that he sends. And we are among those who are its recipients. That urgency was the same urgency as in that first great sermon on the day of Pentecost, where he cried out, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you are not rock-solid sure that you have come to trust, to turn from a life of, of self-centeredness and self-trust to a life of faith in Christ and in His cross, then it is urgent that you do that today, that you make it clear that you put a stake in the ground, that you declare your, your life in Christ in baptism. And to those of you who are believers, He calls us to urgently live in the power of that Holy Spirit, to live holy, productive lives of assurance, to bring about the business of bringing the gospel to the lost, and to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. To do all those things we've talked and looked at over the last weeks. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, you'll be richly provided for that entrance into the eternal kingdom. Now, why does he say this? He says it because we need reminding. He says this because we are forgetful. He says this because we lose focus. And that's his point here. Many people, when they start teaching on this passage, they, they don't start at the beginning, they start to these verses because this tells you this is what Peter is about. 
Verse 12, he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 13, I think it's right to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, I will make every effort so that you may be able at any time to recall these things. It was these verses that I began to read as we started. And that's why I've been urging you to memorize 2 Peter. Starting to memorize this first great passage up through verse 11. Peter says, you need to be reminded of these things, of these qualities. Remember he listed those seven qualities? Who can stand up and tame those seven qualities? Somebody, somebody. Starts with faith, ends with love. You may have a ridiculous picture in your mind to help you. I don't know. Now, I just did this at the Pioneer Campus, a much smaller crowd, and three or four different people were able to do this. I mean, there's no one here that can do this? Okay. Make that screw down. I know you can do it. I know it's probably harder to do it here. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. A Christian who is in Christ has qualities about their life, how they talk, how they think, how they prioritize. Everything is affected by that. And, of course, it's even more than that. This call to colonies means that, there's a, that, that we're constantly aware and, and, and focusing and building our lives on some things that he, 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 he echoes all the way through this letter. There is the need for holiness, to be convinced of the inerrancy of Scripture. That's what we're going to get to next, starting next week. Of the reality of judgment, of the danger of false teaching, to live with the certainty of the return of the Lord Jesus. All this has to do with our living. In 2 Peter 3, the last chapter, he says, Now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm trying to stir you up, that your sincere mind, by way of reminder, that you should remember these predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. We remember these things so that we will live in the way Christ has called us to live. Now, what Peter said, he says it very boldly here. He says, I have nothing new to say to you. If you, if you got this letter and thought you were going to get some great new, brand new, sparkling, exciting, whole new, I have nothing new to say to you. By the way, when you come to the end of your life, I hope you're not planning on those last days, weeks, hours to say a bunch of new things to the people you love. That's not the time for new things. Hopefully it'll be a time where you can say, all the stuff I've been telling you, let me tell you one more time because it's what I really meant. Too many times people get to the end and suddenly they, they want to talk about, you know, trust the Lord and loving Jesus and, all, but they, and their family, the people who knew them said, you never talked like that before. There's something wrong with that. Hopefully you can get to the end of your life and the people who have known you best can can, all you have to do is say, just remember what, what I've tried to live, what I've tried to model. I know it's been imperfect, and I know there's contradiction, but it's, you, you know my heart. That's what I've been about. That's what we ought to do. So Peter says, I want you to live that way. I want you to think that way. I want you to talk that way. And he knows we tend to forget. We need to be established. We need to be anchored on these things. And that's his burden. You know that remembering and forgetting is one of the major themes of the Bible. Back to Deuteronomy 8, one of the great chapters on this. Moses speaking to the people of God. God's marvelously rescued them out of Egypt. They're getting ready to go in the promised land. He says, you shall remember the whole way of the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. 
He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God and not keep His commandments. He says, you shall remember the Lord your God. He says, you, should, you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, which of course they would do in the generations to come. I'm warning you, you're going to perish. Read the Old Testament prophets. This was a constant theme. Jeremiah talked about it over and over again. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Great longest chapter of the Bible about the scriptures. It's calling us to remember, to not forget. Psalm 119, I will not forget your word. I have not forgotten your statutes. I will never forget your precepts. I do not forget your law. I do not forget your precepts. I do not forget your law. And then the very last verse of the chapter, Psalm 119, 176, I do not forget your commandments. Repetition. Nothing new, but the thing is, don't forget it because we tend to forget. I've been your pastor a long time. It's, um, you put up with a whole lot of sermons. It can be challenging to be fresh and new and keep your attention and And I like to do that if I can. But I also know my first responsibility is to repeat some things over and over and over and over again. I'm called to be repetitious in a sense. To every teacher, every father and mother, there are truths. These truths that Peter speaks of, repeat them over and over and over again. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. I will make every effort that after my departure you can be able to recall these things. This is stuff you already know. Just don't forget it. It always comes back to the core of the gospel, what Christ has done to save us on the cross and how Christ living in us means to change us. Now, we not only need to remember it, but we also need to be stirred up in it. It needs to be alive in us. The word now is woke. Are you woke? We've got a culture that's all about woke. You start woke up to a lot of that. Wokeness is nonsense, and worse, it's devilish. But Christians ought to be woke in the best sense of that word, and some of that will make us uncomfortable, and rightly so. Energized, prioritized about the gospel. He says in verse 13, I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. That word stir you up is, is not a gentle little dainty teacup stirring your tea. The word is, is used in the New Testament, and it described that, that storm when Jesus walked on water. Remember, Peter joined him in that experience, but the storm was described as, as a storm that, that God stirred up in the middle of that Lake Galilee. Later, earlier than that, there was another storm in which Jesus was in the boat with his disciples, and he'd fallen asleep. You know it. Mark chapter 4, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, that is Jesus, fully God, but a fully man, Exhausted, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him. That's the word. They stirred him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke. That's the same word, just a slightly different form of it. They stirred him back. They woke him up, and then he rebuked the winds of the sea. And I'd like to go preach that whole passage. It's a strong word. It's rousing someone up. It's waking them up, waking you up to this. I want to remind you of it. So you can be stirred to act. What he said in verse 5. For this reason, make every effort, every effort to do these things, to live out these virtues. What he says here in verse 15. I will make every effort, same phrase, so that after my departure, you can be able to recall these things. The gospel is meant to captivate us, 
be at the center of our imagination and our thinking and our minds. It is the foundation of our whole lives. He says in verse 12, we have been established in the truth. You know what separates liberal theology from orthodox Christians and the orthodox truth we hold? I have a number of what I would call theologically liberal friends, and they, most of them would not dismiss the Bible or, or say bad things about it. They'd say it's, 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 it's got a lot of good things in it, really marvelous things and things that you can't find anywhere else. They would say in the Bible, just look, you'll find a kernel of truth. Peter says something very different. He says, I want you to be firm. I want you to be anchored. I want you to be established on the unchanging truth of God. God has spoken. We often say he has not mumbled. He has left us a deposit of understandable, clearly communicated truth that is to be passed on and preserved. God ordained that it be written down in black and white. He gave human beings and human beings alone the capacity to use words and language like this. And we are to be established in the truth that we have heard in his words. We'll be shaped by it, changed by it. We're not to deviate from it. And it's easy to lose the truth. New ideas come along and everyone likes the new stuff. They like the fresh stuff. And so one after another, I've watched over my whole life. I bought into a few of them. Oh, this secret deal, this secret way, this secret stuff. If, if you just get hold of this and... Anybody remember the prayer of Jabez? Should have wrote that book, Simple Sentence Out of the Bible, doggone it. Could have made millions. Well, there's some good things about it. There's some points to be made that are very legitimate points, but... It was a secret for many. I, I can name a dozen other things. And many of them were, had some good stuff in it, but, but we keep waiting to. And it's so easy to get so caught up in one thing or to, or to this, this new approach. And, and I'm just telling you, you know, I'm a guy that likes to say yes. It's hard for me to say no. It's much easier to say yes. And if you're not real careful, you've moved away from the truth, from the orthodoxy. There are non-negotiable truths that we declare and hold on to and we keep our lives centered on them. And it's not just a matter of truth, it's about how we live. It's easy to get lazy with our holiness. If you think that you got saved and you just, just put life in neutral now and that you belong to Jesus, you're just going to progressively grow more holy and it, it will recall no effort, no decisions, and, and no, no hard choices in your life to do that. You're, you're going to find yourself five, ten years from now in a, a very bad place. Some of you find yourself there today. We're to make every effort, he says. You remember Jesus, how he taught us to pray? And you get a sense of how that rhythm of prayer is supposed to go. He, the, one of the first big requests was, Lord, give us this day daily, our daily bread. I take it from that request that that's the rhythm of this prayer. And so when he says, lead us not into temptation, that ought to be a daily prayer. Every day, Lord, lead me, keep my mind and keep my life lined up with your kingdom and your truth. I can't say that I've always prayed that. I know I probably always needed to pray that. When's the last time you prayed that? Sometimes we slip because our memory fades. Things slip our attention. In Peter's day, when he wrote these words, do you know how many people had a, had a Bible in their home? No one. Some of the letters that Paul and Peter were writing that John was writing. They were starting to be circulated. Probably they had no copies of the gospel, not, not any of the complete ones of Mark, Matthew, John, Luke. So when Peter says, remember, guess what he means? 
Remember, they didn't have a thousand books. They didn't have systematic theology. They didn't have all this stuff worked out. We have just the opposite problem. I got books galore. I can't figure out where to put all my books. My wife won't let them put them be in place in the house. I'm out of room here. And what I don't have physical copies of, I now have hundreds and hundreds of copies digitally. I'm going to read some of them one of these days. And really, that's our problem now, isn't it? Too much information. We are flooded with it. You have in your purse, you have in your pocket a, a, a reservoir of knowledge about any subject, any event, anything in the, in the history of the world, practically, that you can drown, bring up. And we're, we're just drowning in this stuff. But what we end up doing is we forget the things we ought to remember, and we remember the things we ought to forget. And every bit of that that's bombarding us, who's grabbing for your attention, who's flashy and shiny and say, look, this is a new thing, it's not going to come to you with a, a warning sign about what it may very well be about. Because a great deal of it is. All those YouTube videos and exciting movies and the intriguing novels that get made into movies and the, the whodunits and those crushing video games, none of them come, or at least very few of them come with a banner that say, satanic lies meant to lead you to Satan worship and to hell. But a whole lot of them, most of them, are exactly trying to take you in that direction. Take the truth that you have and hold on to it. Just because it's old, just because it's been around for a long time, does not make it less precious. There's a lot of young people in this room this morning, and I thank God for you. I thank for God what he's doing, the young people, the young adults in this church. Many of us, we look back on our lives and we, uh, we remember how we fell in love with Jesus in a deep and profound way. A lot of it was when we were in our 20s. Remember the high passion we had and the fire we had for Jesus in those days. And quite frankly, that when God's doing that in the life of, of young people in our church, it's thrilling. We need, to, we need that. We, we need to be reminded of that. And some of us need to be reminded of that because it was about in the 20s at the last time we had that passion. We've been coasting on fumes ever since. We need to be stirred up. We need to be, be, be calibrated that the, 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 the fundamental truths of this, this very gospel ought to be the center of our hearts and our lives. So easy to lose. Truth is like the tip of your nose. It's hardest to see when it's right in front of you. The truth is most everything we need to learn is what we've forgotten. The great challenge of the American church is not some new gimmick. It's not to reinvent itself. It's to remember the old story, once and for all, delivered. That's where God does his work, as we build our life and actually act it out in our life. Teachers in our church, I know it can get boring to say I'm teaching the same old truths. Use every bit of, of integrity, of insight, of, of creativity God's given you, but teach those old truths. Because a great, much worse mistake would be to say, well, you know, we've been saying the same thing. I think I need to find some new thing to add to it. Make it more intriguing. I don't know the whole story of our church. I was around when Kings started. I was just a boy, early 60s. But as best I know, the gospel that was preached at the beginning of this church is the same essential. A lot of things have changed. A lot of things are different. But the heart of the gospel we're still trying to preach is the same old gospel. And I pray that in 2050 and in 2080, by God's grace... If Jesus hasn't come back, the gospel being preached in this church will be the same old gospel. 
because it's the truth. We need to be reminded of it. We need to be stirred up in it. We need to get established and reestablished in it. We need to remember that the scriptures are true, that Jesus is God, that we're forgiven at the cross, that we're justified by faith, that we show our faith in deeds and holy lives, that we share our faith with others, that we pray and read the Bible, that we believe that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead, that we believe that hell is real and terrible and heaven is better than we can imagine, and we believe that God is all in all. May we ever stand there and know that, and may it be at the forefront of our life. Fathers and mothers, is this at the forefront of your family? Have you neglected these truths in the most critical place of all in your home? Don't, particularly when things are hard, when, when terrifying situations come, when suffering comes. Do not forget to tell your family these essential, unchanging things that they can anchor their lives on. We can get caught up in a high theology, and I, I love to think deeply about God. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, dear friends, it's not the deep, esoteric, complicated all those sort of things that we can get so wrapped around up. Sometimes the most simple things is just what needs to be cleared. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you'll live every day this week with that at the forefront of your heart, Jesus really does love me. His Bible tells me the truth about him and about myself. You'll find you're a long way on your way to faithfulness. Peter writes and longs for them to be established in the truth. Not in some truth, not in his truth. Not in the Christian form of truth. You ought to add that to the other truths you've learned. He says, in the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a truth that changes everything. It is the truth, the way, the life, the only way. He wanted these Christians to be silent on that. He, they need to be silent on that because the days were coming. There are going to be all kinds of false things going to be promoted and pushed at them by people who sounded very fluent and very, very capable. And he doesn't want them to be vulnerable to the lies that are always going to come. So he says in chapter 2, verse 14, there's teachers coming, their eyes full of adultery. Their lives are, by their lives, they're going to tell you, just live any, do anything you want to do. Just, just buy into the sexual ethics or lack of ethics of the culture you live in. They're enticing, unstable souls. He says in chapter 3, he talks about Paul and his words. He says, it is hard to understand, but he says that the danger is there's some men out there who are taking Paul's words, Scripture, and they're twisting them, and they are untaught and unstable, and they're trying to distort the Word of God. So he's saying the same thing Paul said to the Ephesians, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Instead, we're to be, as he says, Six, be strong in the Lord. So let's go over it all again. We're saved with a faith of the same standing, of the same quality that Peter had. As we says in verse 1, your life is to be characterized by a multiplying grace and shalom of Jesus. His divine power is there to provide you everything you need, everything you need for life and godliness. And that will come to the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. His glory and His excellency calls you to that. So that now these divine, precious promises, promises that include heaven and the riches of heaven that are going to be ours, they also provide us so that we can share in the divine nature right now and we can escape the corruptions in the world and we can live out these virtues that are characteristic of the Christian life. Here, one of the great truths at the heart of this that because we're saved by faith, it motivates us to want to live for him, to serve him, 
to live holy lives. That the grace that we have in Jesus Christ is not licensed to sin, to be careless, to drift, to buy into everything the culture around us says that's the way to go. If you don't understand that, you've missed the whole point of the New Testament because that, that message is constantly there. Romans 3.1, Romans, the whole chapter 6 of Romans 6. Galatians 5.13, the whole book of 1 Corinthians, the whole book of 1 John, they are laboring to make the point that grace and the virtues of Christ are inseparable. We all know 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, Jesus, that God made Jesus to be sin for who knew no sin. What a glorious message of God's grace. Jesus became my sin and was punished on the cross. But why did he do that? The rest of the verse says so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. James says if you have a faith and that faith doesn't produce a changed life, it doesn't produce good works, go back and look at that faith carefully. You've got a $3 bill. It's a fake faith. It's fraud. Real faith produces change. Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What a glorious thing. But why? So that he has trained us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Peter wants to stir us up. Be thankful. Praise God for the grace that he's given you. Now go on in the way of obedience. Let me put it as plainly, as simply as I know how. Faith in Christ alone. Not faith in what you do, but faith in Christ alone saves you. But the faith that saves you unites you to Christ who transforms you. We got it? Say it with me. Faith in Christ alone saves you. But the faith which saves you unites you to Christ who transforms you. One more time. Faith in Christ alone saves you. But the faith which saves you unites you to Christ and transforms you forms you. You're like me, you say, but I don't always do that. I fail. I, I don't live up to it. None of us have. We've grieved the Father. We've quenched the Spirit. But because we know this is true, we come running back to the Father. In our grief and our sadness, we come to Him and we confess our sin. We admit it for what it is, the damage it has done, and we trust in Christ again. And we abide in Christ. Remember, He's our true vine, and we know we apart from Him we can do nothing but the goal is clear, the direction is clear, and that's where we're headed. A couple of quick applications and we're done. We look in this new year as we work in August, looking to start in September. The present groups we have and many new groups, I'm going to encourage you, as you'll hear me say over and over, to find a group, to find a fellowship of people within our church. We're going to call them move groups, if you'll indulge that. That's, there's nothing new about them, but they are the is to point to the same basic things we need to accomplish in those groups. Today we've talked about what ought to be happening. Every leader of those groups, we ought to be moving up, focusing on the truth of God, reminding, encouraging, stirring it up, because apart from it, everything else will fail. And then, more personally, as us as believers, I simply ask you to imagine that day that's going to come one day when you're going to know that you're going to die. What do you want to say to your fellow believers when that day comes? Good luck. Do your best. Did it my way? I thought about it. I'm saying, honey, take care of all those books. I know I didn't read a lot of them, but I, you know. I hope when you come to the end of their life, you'll be able to say something like this, and they'll know it's just an echo of what they've been hearing from you. Remember, I love you. 
that Jesus loves you? And everything really good and positive that matters in my life came out of the way I love Jesus and the way he loved me. And the Bible is true. You can stake your life on it. Submit yourself to it. That's what I would want people to hear in my farewell address. I hope it's what they would want them to hear in your farewell address. And I'd hope to you that, that when they walk out, they say, well, same thing he's been saying all these years. So what are you going to do to speak those words now? Speak them now. Live them now. Let's stand.